Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's guest is Sam Weston. He's a former political advisor turned PR executive turned technology consultant. Sam is living the American dream and working with executives, academics, millionaires, and policymakers on improving technology literacy in Washington. And he's doing this as an expat from New Zealand, now living in Minneapolis. Sam knows that we've got a bunch of people who don't know anything about AI or blockchain fighting old political battles from the 20th century. He believes that if you fix technology literacy, you have a chance at fixing work and fixing the world. Now, Sam and I have been friends since 2007, and we have an interesting conversation that's been edited down to just the good stuff. I know you'll love Sam in his accent, and I know you'll really enjoy hearing what he has to say about fixing the modern workforce. So sit tight. I'll be right back after the break with Sam Weston on Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's Fix Work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. One thing you'll notice about Sam right off the bat is that he's not from around here. So what's a guy like Sam doing in American politics? Well, he worked in New Zealand politics for several years before coming to the U.S. to do the same. What prompted that move, though, was a bit too much West Wing. Yeah, I mean, for me, growing up in New Zealand, you know, American politics was like celebrities. It was like playing in the majors, right? So, you know, and, and America is kind of the only country where you can get paid to work in consulting, you know, um, legally and not in like suitcases of cash. So, you know, people like me, political nerds from all over the world, want to grow up and, and uh, work in American political consulting because we grew up watching too much West Wing, you know, and we would like to sort of live out those fantasies. And I got the chance to do that for several years in D.C. Sam's time in political consulting required him to learn how to use the right combination of words to help win elections. Not surprisingly, that's the same skill set you need for PR, and he landed at the PR firm Rubenstein. It was a real eye-opener for me because, uh, you know, I'd spent a lot of my life, you know, sort of in political knife fights. And this sort of gave me the perspective of, you know, how brands were built in America and how the news gets made. And, um, and I was also doing it at a time when everything was changing and we would have debates on a daily basis about whether or not bloggers were reporters. Sam worked in PR and then a web agency called Huge when the internet was changing business dramatically. He saw how companies either embraced the internet or failed. Now, Sam's history as a political consultant allows him to draw some unique parallels. But first, I asked him if we live in a better world now, post-internet adoption by businesses. I think that for business, it's been terrific. I mean, you only have to look at the stock market to see well, how Well, okay, Donald Trump, for some business, <laughs> it's been terrific. Not all businesses. Well, well this, is, this is an important part of the conversation, right? Businesses have grown at the expense of employees significantly over the last you know, 20 plus years. And the internet has just been gasoline on that fire. I think that technology and the internet specifically 
has fueled enormous cost effectiveness in business. It's allowed businesses to rip all sorts of jobs and bureaucracies out of their systems and, you know, return more money to their shareholders, which is about the only ambition that most large companies have. You know, so has it been, has it been good for the world? I think it's, I think it's uh, you know, a bit of both, right? Like there are definite improvements in the world um, as a result of communications technology. You know, even, even Mark Zuckerberg, you know, made a big, has, has made positive impacts on, on the world. Well, um, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I mean, he's got that hospital, right? You know, he's done a few <laughs> nice things. But man, at the expense of relationships, at the expense of lives and also society, you know, if, in Mark Zuckerberg's world, the company is the community, right? I mean, that's the model yeah. he's setting up. And I think we've seen that playbook before. We've seen the Pullman cars. We've seen all of the yeah. robber barons back in the day who really wanted employees to also buy from them and be a part of them and mm-hmm. create this internal ecosystem. And then when it all collapses, it collapses hard. So like, yeah, I, I, I'm not I, too keen on Mark Zuckerberg right now. I'm a little worried. <laughs> no, look, I, I agree. I, I think that um, changes like this really calamitous effects, you know, as they roll through, right? I think that Facebook changed the world. I mean, it's easy to joke about it right now, you know, because it's made a long running series of systemic errors that make you wonder about the core values and priorities of the company. But, you know, at the same time, it has allowed people to do something that they fundamentally couldn't do before it existed. Yeah, Um, like what? What is Facebook (laughs) allowing us to do that we didn't do before? It allows you to keep an eye you know, sort of uh, peripheral, peripherally appreciate the lives in motion of everybody that you, you know, have ever come into contact with. But I think that the ability to appreciate, you know, the changes and evolution of more people's lives, be conscious of, you know, what's going on in, in your, you know, your own social network, I think is a, is a good thing. You know, I think unfortunately... too much of social media is driven by um, the business incentives of the platforms. Yeah, it's like business incentives and ego. Although you're right in that Facebook, Twitter, all of these different apps have really enabled a different kind of communication and connectivity. I think about the way we met. I actually met your (laughs) ex-wife on the internet. She was a fan of mine and reached out to me when you were at a critical point in your career and said, could you give my husband some career advice? And I'm like, oh God, this is going <laughs> to, it's going to go one of two ways. And you know, it, it went away, <laughs> but um, your wife is lovely. You're lovely. We've become in real life friends. And I think about how important it's been for us over the past decade, and it's really been a decade, to meet in real life, to maintain those connections. Because if you just existed on the internet, I would not care about your job. I would not care about your career. But we made an effort to be friends. And I think that's made all the difference for me. You know? Yeah, I feel the same way. And I think that's the internet in a nutshell. You know, It enables all sorts of new things, gives people the opportunity to meet people directly, 
which creates business opportunities. It gives people an enormous platform for new types of creativity and thinking, but it also exposes you to fake news and just a bunch of bullshit. And fake brands and inauthentic brands and inauthentic messaging. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, you talked about starting your own consultancy and I want to talk about that because I work in the world of consulting, specifically in the world of work. And there are all these consultants out there who monetize a solution and they believe that their solution is the most effective solution in fixing work, whether it's technology-driven, technology process-driven, systems-driven. And they feel as if if you just implement that one solution in the world of work, it's like a house of cards and everything. Well, a reverse house of cards, but everything will <laughs> fall into place. Mm -hmm. It is like a house of cards, actually. But Everything will fall into place if you just do this prescriptive thing we're telling you to do. So what's your take on consultants in the world of work? And <laughs> <laughs> have you seen anything that you like? Is anybody out there fixing work? Anything that really sticks with you? And I would imagine having seen so many clients, huge, there are really good work environments out there. And I wonder if you can comment on what does a good work environment look like? Right. Well, fixing work is the perfect marketing pitch because everybody has their own unique, misery-inspired perspective on what's broken about work, right? <laughs> Yeah, this podcast is <laughs> testament to that. <laughs> you know, and that, that's, that's as true for the, for the consultants that are selling stuff, for the purchases on the client side that are buying stuff, and for the employees that are um, suffering through it, you know, <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, totally. right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the things that are quote-unquote broken about work aren't really broken at all. Communication at work, like do employees need more communication? Maybe is the answer to fixing communication at work Slack and GitHub and a thousand different messages. I hope not. It, Holy you know, shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because more communication at work doesn't necessarily fix the communication problem, right? And I can think of a of hundred let's fix work by fixing specific thing that that don't fix the global problem that yeah so wait so what's the global problem <laughs> well the global problem as much as i can come up with one uh in terms of workplaces is that no one is fixing work for employees and when you think about consultants going out pitching ideas to fix work they're pitching them to employers who are going to pay them lots of money to fix their problems and most employers are pretty happy with the way things are their biggest challenge right now is finding emerging skill sets you know, to help them do new things and firing the old people as fast as they can. Yeah, the you ones know? who are expensive and don't meet that new required yeah. skill set. Yeah, that makes you sense. Know, there, are, there are very few companies that exist to really take care of their employees beyond a marketing tactic. And I think the biggest challenge that people looking to fix work you know, could really, really take up is how do you fix work on behalf of employees? Wait, you know, do you think companies should fix work on behalf of employees? Because I do. I think there's a responsibility if you're in this marketplace and you benefit from the, you know, the tax dollars and the hard work of individuals, you have an obligation to treat people well. But yeah. not all people think like that, Sam. What do you think? Well, absolutely. I mean, companies are the people that make them up. No, that's um, what Mitt Romney says, yeah. Companies are the people that do the work. And unfortunately, you know, that's not the way that companies operate. Yeah. You know, most companies, and I think you've been very effective in, in saying this, you know, like most human resources departments 
are not there for the humans in the workplace. They're there to represent the interests of the of the employer and the and the business. And so, any initiatives that are trying to fix work that aren't really focused on identifying and solving employee problems aren't going to solve problems for employees. You know, they will continue to solve problems for employers, which will keep employees as happy as possible at the lowest possible salary for as long as the employee needs them, and then get rid of them in the most seamless way possible. You are uh, a cynic, just like me. That's why you're on this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We are dear friends for this. Well, wait a second. So what are the core employee-related issues that you're seeing in the global workforce? Because it's really, I mean, it's communication, but eh, everybody has communication there's, problems, there's right? There's two. There are two problems, I think. Okay, I mean, here. for the most people, the problem is making enough money to, to live. Most people have experienced downward pressure on their on their wages um, effectively over the last three decades. Uh, they are struggling to make ends meet in a world where you need to buy more and more stuff and everything gets more expensive. You know, the, the, the fundamental problem is that um, the interests of the company, you know, returning profit to shareholders and the interests of the employee are diametrically opposed. And so the, the biggest, the first biggest problem is, you know, just how do I as an employee get paid what I'm, I'm worth? And for the, the other set, it's deriving meaning from, from your work. Because when you have enough money to live, you know, the thing that keeps you up at night, the thing that makes you wonder whether or not you should take another job or quit your job, is whether or not what you're doing has any purpose and whether, you know, you're wasting your life. Um, and I think that in Silicon Valley and certain technology firms, they've done a good job of selling meaning to their employees, but it's hollow. It's you know largely hollow. Facebook is a great example. You know, a company that you know, I'm sure tells its employees that they're connecting the world, but is essentially a large advertising platform. And yeah, you wrote about that in Fast Company right. Design, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I think one of the things that um, technology companies in general, have had to do in order to compete for scarce resources is to convince these employees who could go anywhere that they wanted that working at their company is the best way to change the world. But, you know, the business models for those companies, by and large, are creating enormous databases of users that you can then package up and sell to advertisers. I, I want to I wanna stop right there because I want to make sure my audience and my listeners get this. What you're saying is Facebook is no different than Time Magazine or People Magazine or National Enquirer, right? Right. It is a, it is a much <clears throat> more sophisticated platform because it has derived far more intimate you know, information about every single one of its 2 billion users. But it essentially exists to give that information to people who want to, to advertise. And that is what keeps Facebook growing. That's what keeps the, stock, you know, the shareholders happy. That is what Mark and Cheryl spend most of their time thinking about. Amazing. You know? Amazing. And, and we don't talk about that. Because Not at all. Facebook does a very good job, just like other companies, of wrapping their business up in you know, a broader meaning and purpose. And back to your original question, this is what most, you know, sort of high value employees are looking for in their work, but that is missing from most employee experiences because fundamentally companies don't have any higher ambition than 
returning value to the shareholders. Well, that's pretty depressing. So you mentioned two things about the problems of work, which is um, employees need to earn more money in order to survive. And then for the employees who are making a decent wage, they need more meaning. They need, they need true meaning. And so is that what the future of work is all about, addressing those two core things? Well, or is the future of work about automation and robots and monkeys turning into you know, part hybrid machines? Like, What's, what's the future of work then? Well, it's totally applicable to the future of work, in fact, even, even more so because dynamics like not necessarily monkeys, but uh, automation are going to strip work away from more and more people, making both money and meaning the things that we have to spend most of our time thinking about over the next sort of 25, 30 years. We will see as artificial intelligence makes its way into services and products that are able to reduce the number of accountants that you need, offset certain roles that doctors can do, all sorts of service and, and clerical white-collar professions over the next, even the, the next decade, the amount of change that is coming will be significant and automation won't be a problem that just affects factory workers and taxi drivers. It will be a, something that affects your dad's friend, John, who was a lawyer for 40 years and your niece who can't find you know, a job after graduating from, from law school because they're not taking on junior associates. You know? So is the future of work not work? I think that for more and more people, that will be the case. I think that the jury is out on whether or not the sort of coming wave of AI will create more jobs than it eliminates you know, in the long run. I think technology has, you know, has always created new, new types of jobs and new opportunities for new jobs. What we don't talk about, though, is the jobs that it destroys and the lives that are caught up in that change, right? I think, you know, I've been to enough AI conferences now to hear people who are uh, technical experts asked, you know, this specific question, you know, is AI going to destroy all jobs? And they always say, well, in the long run, it will create more jobs. But in the short run, maybe you shouldn't really ask me this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you yeah. Know. Are there any government institutions or policymakers really thinking about the lives that are being affected right now? Or are we all just uh, trying to forget that my uncle John or my cousin Toby lost their job and they've been unemployed since they've been 42 years old, right? I, I don't want to say that this is you know, the responsibility of the innovator because people who you know, are trying to create new things, you know... <laughs> don't want to be burdened with the consequences of their work. Yeah, that's the but, history of the, the industrial movement, everything here in America. Let's right, put right. Put the technology in and not worry about the lives, yeah. But that, that's exactly it, right? Yeah. So, um, But it is the responsibility of the businesses that hire those innovators and the politicians that sort of govern the regulatory infra infrastructure that supports our economy, right? And among those audiences there is nowhere near the attention to these issues that there needs to be. The reason that we have Donald Trump as president and you know, Brexit in the UK is because <coughs> social Democrats, of whom you know, I am a proud affiliate, um, pushed for moderniz modernization of trade and technology initiatives for the last 20 plus years because they were really important for our economies and our countries. But 
we paid lip service to all of the consequences. We paid lip service to the need for retraining and helping people who were affected by that change. We did nothing to actually support the people who lost their jobs when jobs went to India, you know, or jobs were taken by, by robots, right, on the factory floor. And there were <clears throat> reasons, um, there were always reasons that Democrats didn't double down on helping the people who were affected by those changes. Yeah, um, lobbyists, money. I mean, those reasons, right? Well, you know, uh, politically also, not expedient, right? <laughs> politically not expedient, I think, yeah. is a big one. I think Democrats, because they have lacked a responsible debate partner for the last you know, 15 years in the U.S., have become the party of sort of upholding the status quo. Oh, you know, that's rather interesting. Than, yeah. Yeah, I mean, essentially... You know, Democrats, because the party had to become committed to keeping the country intact without... I can't argue with crazy, that's for sure. Right, right. uh, Became, to a lot of the people that they used to represent, the party that was defending the status quo that was no longer working for them, right? So so anyway, you know, Democrats, because they didn't want to be associated with unions and and left-wing politics, didn't really double down on helping the people that were caught up in this sort of creative destruction of jobs and now um, have been penalized finally by a lot of those voters, you know, voting for someone who has no interest in, in, in their, you know, their lives really, but, you know, who talks a, a much better game. It's all very interesting. And I think it's so right. I mean, we don't talk about accountability within the Democratic Party for Donald Trump. And we helped to create this monster. So that was, that was really well said and really interesting. It's, it's totally the consequence of paying lip service to the changes that we pushed out of necessity over the last 20 years. Um, and now we're backed into a corner where to do the things we need to do, it costs political capital as well as real capital in order to go into Appalachia and educate and provide health care and to do things right in certain parts of this country. I mean, it takes a total transformation of our economy, our educational system. It takes us having a backbone and going against patriarchal structures, the ev- evangelical church, right? I mean, there's so much work to be done and we've made it exponentially harder from 20 years of lack of courage. Yeah, well, we face real questions about what we want to do in the face of this change. I think that the Democratic Party has become the party of the winners in America, and it used to be the party of, the, of <laughs> not the losers, but the people, you know, who, yeah, who, who needed class help, people. right? Yeah. And this is not just applicable to Democrats, it's applicable to businesses and and everybody who's been successful, you know, and whose success has been enabled by changes brought about by technology. What are we going to do with what we've made? And I I think if you ask people in our situation, a lot of them will tell you, you know, well, fuck those people. (laughs) You know, they voted for Donald Trump. Let them get what they deserve. But not fuck those people because those people are a monolithic voting block that are going to continue to vote in a government that doesn't care about the right policy that enables innovation and change. Yeah, there are certain uh, structural political reasons in America why why fuck those people is not like a a uh, argument you want to make in the short term. Yeah, but but I think you know there's a there's a bigger debate to be had, which is. In the world that we are building, where all the money lives in cities on the coasts, what do we want the heartland? What do we want the you know the places that 
used to be the backbone of America to look like in the future? Is there a future for them? Do we encourage people to live in small town America? Uh, or do we just write those people off for essentially making bad decisions? Wait, think, as a man living in Minneapolis, do you feel like you've made a bad decision? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Minneapolis is a, you know, a solid B tier city. So I agree, feel like I'm right, I'm right in the middle of this. No, right. but, uh, so wait, do you have a vision? Do you know what the future of work, what the future of America looks like? Now that you're here and you're a resident and you have children who are <laughs> citizens of this country, I mean, you're as invested in not only the global marketplace, but also the US marketplace. So what does the future look like? The future looks really scary for a lot of people. You know, I think a lot of adults with kids will tell you that they have no idea what their kids will end up doing when they leave school. The education system is certainly not preparing them for the world that they're going into. I think we don't really know what the economy is going to look like in 10, 15 years because it has been changing so rapidly We've had the iPhone for 10 years, right? 10, 10, just, just a decade ago. Only 10 years. Right? You know, like now your phone dictates your life, right? You, you, you never really let go of it. Sadly, um, that's true. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that there will be more change in the next 10 years than, than the last 10 years. I think that that will create lots of new, exciting opportunities for people who are entrepreneurial, but I also think that a lot of the change that's coming will be to remove types of manual labor and service jobs that make up a decent amount of, of what people do day to day and have done for, for decades in America. And how we help those people, what those people do, will be a major issue for everybody to, to confront politically, um, socially. Well, let's talk about that. When we come back, we'll talk about the future of work and what stands in the way of fixing work and fixing our society. But before we take a break, I want to ask you something. Does it drive you crazy when Americans try to replicate the New Zealand accent? It doesn't really happen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Happened at your wedding at the table. That's true. That's true. I, I, you know, we're a small country, so uh, right. we, we enjoy it, you know, any positive <laughs> you know, supporting efforts that we get. Well, good. Well, everybody, when we come back, we'll do Sam's accent and we'll talk about fixing work. Hang tight. See you in a second. Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? Then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said, everything. Book a call with a podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast. And we'll take it from there. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lori Brudeman, and this is Let's Fix Work. I'm here today with my good friend, Sam Weston, who is going to teach me how to do a New Zealand accent. Just kidding, Sam. Don't do that. It'd be so bad. <laughs> I'm terrible with any accent other than my own. So. Yeah, yeah. Good. Fair. All right. Well, you know, we've been talking about what's wrong, and you and I are dear friends because we're both Debbie Downers. You know, we could do this all day, every day, just complain. But I want to know what stands in the way of fixing work and fixing society, and then maybe we can talk talk about 
some of the good things that we can be doing. So just real briefly, what stands in the way of, you know, uh, policy, process, systems, improving and improving the quality of life for global citizens? <laughs> just quickly. Three, three answers. That's all I want. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, from a policy standpoint, one of the biggest problems is the lack of literacy among policymakers. There has been so much change and most of the people who are elected officials in America didn't go, <laughs> didn't go into politics because they really cared about writing policy. No. You know, they, they did it because it was the last thing to do after running their town's most successful used car sales lot, you know, uh, and that was, you know, <laughs> you know, they'd made their million dollars and that was the last thing to put on the resume. And, you know, the general age and stage and priorities of people in Congress aren't really aligned with the changes that are happening out there in, in technology. So I think helping policymakers, you know, and that includes their teams as well, develop enough of a, an understanding about the foundations of this change to apply their own political instincts to it is one of the most important things that we can do. You know, we often, we often debate, most politics in America is debating 60-year-old fights. Like we've been fighting the same fights over and over and over again, election after election, when there are all sorts of new issues to talk about. And there are issues that, that are, are exciting issues to talk about because they're not politicized yet, right? And so one thing that's a priority for me in my career is finding a way to help politicians think about technology in bigger ways than just how can I use this? You know, like <laughs> what's Twitter and how can I use it to help me win my next election? Well, that's where they are right now. And I know that this is something you're passionate about and talked about at South by Southwest. And so tell us a little bit about some of the cool things that we could be focused on instead of stupid Twitter and stupid Snapchat. Well, you know, changes like artificial intelligence are obviously top of mind because they're so much broader than a single issue or, or industry, right? AI has the potential to cut across industries and society in, in a way that, um, you know, we haven't really seen, I guess, since the internet really rolled around, right? Yeah. Um, but there are all sorts of new, you know, unexplored areas, whether it's biotechnology, travel. You know, your travel point is really interesting because I just read um, today that international space travel for civilians is within reason. It's like going to be here before we know it. And none of us are thinking about that. We're arguing about abortion we're arguing about affirmative action and we're not thinking about the environmental and social implications of just going to the moon for the day, and which there are truly environmental <laughs> implications with all that waste that's going to be generated from this and the impact on yeah. uh, what it's like on our bodies, right, to do that kind of travel. So you're right, there's cool stuff we could be talking about and, and who owns the routes that go to the moon and all that interesting stuff. Nobody's chatting about it. Right. And, you know, I mean, even basic stuff, you know, the stuff that has sort of underscored a lot of the, the debate about Facebook, for example, you know, privacy. What does privacy look like in the world that we've created for ourselves and that we, we are creating? Most people in, in politics don't really know enough about the basics to develop a political position on it. And, and so is this something that you're doing as part of this new phase in your career, really helping policymakers and their teams think about the implications of technology? What I'm working on is an initiative to help policymakers understand the basics of artificial intelligence 
and uh, explain it to them in a contextualized way that <laughs> makes it politically relevant for them. And I think that this is a, an initiative <clears throat> that's it's interesting to me, not just because I'm interested in artificial intelligence and all the issues that are wrapped up in it, but because a lot of nonprofit advocacy efforts are they, they, they're never as effective as they should be because they stop, you know, they don't do the last mile. They do a very good job of raising awareness, publishing content. But if, if that content doesn't make it in the, into the hands of someone who can do something with it, um, is that the last mile getting it into mile, into a know? policymaker's hands so they can yeah. enact legislation? Yeah, and in a way that they can use it with the context that makes it important to them. I think that we're drowning in awareness about every single issue. Oh right? yeah, right. Um, but we're not drowning in change. No, we are <laughs> you, not you know? drowning so in change. Most most advocacy uh, organizations, you know, and this is somewhat unfair to them, I think, but. A lot of advocacy and nonprofit organizations aren't really incentivized to fix the problem. They're incentivized to promote the problem and make everybody care about it because that's how they raise more money to keep doing what they're doing. They're not trying to put themselves out of business. I'm not saying that this approach you know, necessarily improves on that, but it, um, it goes that extra mile of helping, you know, going directly to the people that um, need to close the gap and giving them the information and the um, action points in order to do so. And I think that's closing that gap on artificial intelligence is the most important thing that anybody can be working on in the next five years. So that's what I really want to want to focus on. But, you know, it's equally true for, for anybody, whether that issue is climate change or space travel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned working yourself out of a job and really making sure that the investments that you're taking in today are solving the problem instead of just perpetuating the cycle of awareness. When I worked in human resources, I often said, there's no reason why I need to have this job. You know, if I teach you something and you learn how to do whatever it is, like be a decent fucking human being, right? <laughs> you don't need me to be your HR generalist and continually teach you how to do that. So that, that approach really resonates with me. And I think that we could be making investments in the next five to 10 years to prepare us for a better future, really taking the money from either the federal government or from taxpayers and putting them in certain places where the investment really reaps benefits. So I have opinions on this, but I wonder if you have an opinion on where we ought to be investing our time and resources to fix work and fix our society. Well, I think the, the thing that we have lacked for a long time in America and not exclusive to America is a cohesive vision for the future. You know, I think that um, most campaigns are fought out by people who have message tested the right things to say in order to eke out five, a five-point at best margin of victory. There is little in the way of real vision for the future expressed by political leaders. And I think actually even by business leaders, you know, because when you survey people working in technology, their ambition is almost always 
sell, yeah. <laughs> you know, make a billion dollars and then figure out what's next, right? Or um, wrapped in a thinly veiled attempt to sound like Deepak Chopra and to help everybody become self-actualized. That's the other message of Silicon Valley. Like, we're going we're gonna to sell you stuff, but we're also going to make you into a better human being, both of which For, for as, as, as much as he makes me roll my eyes, you know, Elon Musk is almost singular in his ability to express and then back up a broad vision for the future. And so wait, are, wait, he makes you roll your eyes? I love. I mean, he does. I mean, he's kind of a doofus, <laughs> but I love Elon Musk because you're right. There's a lack of a, a moonshot. That word is so overused, but we don't have a national moonshot on anything. We have partisan politics, but Elon Musk is thinking about the neural net and stuff that's just insane at this point. He's yeah. got that vision. I mean, yeah, well, he's inspired by Kanye, but he's pretty great. <laughs> Well, you know, that's why I said roll your eyes, right? <laughs> um, he, there are lots of people who have put together the right string of buzzwords to get them through a PowerPoint presentation, you know, <laughs> you know, and keep a job for an extra year. Elon Musk is, is very singular in business for his ability to do that, but then also back it up with space rockets that can go to space and then land themselves or cars that can drive on batteries and look sexy at the same time. I think that what is really inspiring about him is that he's not afraid of having a broad ambition and committing the resources to actually deliver on it. And I think that it is very, very depressing to me that for the amount of wealth that has been created and transferred in the last two generations, that we only really have one Elon Musk. If you're, if you're a billionaire the only excuse for you not having a similar level of ambition at this point is just sheer laziness. Um, God, that's so well said, those fucking millionaires. <laughs> oh, my God. But you're you know, right. If you have that kind of money, where are the Carnegie's or the Rockefellers, the people who created libraries and universities? Where are yeah. they now, Sam? Well, I mean, those foundations continue to do good work. And, and I don't think that they are the core of the problem. I think that there are thousands of millionaires, hundreds of billionaires created regularly um, who are just not putting that money to, you know, to work for a real socially important vision. So uh, that's part of the problem and also part of the solution if you can fix it. But it's also paralleled by the lack of ambition in the political sphere. And I think that, um, you know, to your earlier question, we as citizens should be really looking to government and saying, with all this amazing technology that is changing the economy, creating wealth, putting people out of work, how are you using it to make life better for us, right? We don't ask that question. No one out there has really been pushing it. But I think it has the potential to be a transformative question. And we have a, another campaign coming up very, very shortly um, yeah, where yeah. more candidates will, I think, look to answer it. The first two declared candidates in the in the democratic side of the aisle are, are both are both running on AI platforms to some some degree you know and who are who are those two candidates there's one from Maryland right yeah uh, congressman John Delaney who is yeah. the founder of the AI caucus and um, Andrew Yang uh, from oh, New York, um, who's running on basic income but you know we should be those of us who are inclined and working in technology should be doing more to help politicians talk and think and create ideas that harness these technologies to improve life for everybody 
and to solve some of these long-running problems by, to the best that we can, making them obsolete. I do want to I do want to end by asking you one question because when I asked where are the Rockefellers and where are the Carnegies I meant where are the new ones right where are the new people out there and I know you're passionate about taking people who are founders and you know maybe founded a, a great organization and they're at a different stage in their life you want to connect those individuals with really smart designers creative people right yeah. so they can start working on some of uh, the answers to society's problems so can you talk a little bit about that vision and what that might look like. Yeah, it's a hypothesis. Yeah, um, tell me about your hypothesis. <laughs> My hypothesis is that there are a significant enough number of people out there with the means to change the world um, that just need help with the ends. And that is in articulating a vision, but it's also in assembling the teams of experts to help them do it and to do things quickly. I think a lot of the philanthropic industrial complex that has built up over the last hundred years, like I said before, goes toward creating an institution that will last another hundred years, right? That's not how things should work or, you know, do work today. You should be able to bring together a team of five, 10 people and quickly launch products, experiences, services uh, that solve real problems. You know, one of the things that I was uh, most proud to work on at Huge was a product called Notifica, which came out of a hackathon that we held where a small team of five people in partnership with United We Dream, which is one of the leading advocacy organizations for young dreamers, created a product, Notifica, that serves as a, an alert system for people at risk of deportation. You know, when ICE comes to your door, you can hit a single button that sends an alert to customized alerts to your support network that let you know let them know what's happening to you right that doesn't solve the problem of Donald Trump's racist immigration problems policies but it solves a real problem a very real problem for immigrants and their families yeah and, that's amazing it's like an emergency button right you know it sends right. out a beacon to all your friends and and it look it took people 6 weeks to work on you know amazing. Uh, from start to scratch didn't really cost a lot of money to, to build. Could have been done for free with the right combination of volunteers. And I think that for people who have the means, that's what the future looks more, you know, it looks like. You know, bringing together small teams to work on discrete problems that are part of a larger vision in order to level up the human experience over time. Well, Sam, uh, I want to let everybody know that if they've got the means, you've got the ends. So <laughs> why don't we tell everybody where they can find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at, at Sam Weston and at samweston.co. Great. Well, everybody, I'll be right back to wrap things up. And Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, everybody. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now, I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net 
forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sam Weston. God, I love that guy. And I will quickly tell you, I met him in 2007 through his first wife, who was a stand-up comedian. Yeah, that's kind of how my life goes. And I'm so lucky because Sam is just an interesting guy. Please connect with him on LinkedIn and on the internet. And while you're at it, connect with me at Let's Fix Work or L Rudiman. You can also email me at hello at letsfixwork.com. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, review, share. Give us a five-star review. We love that. And we're always happy when we see good feedback. So find us on your favorite podcast player. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino and Megan Doherty, they know the internet and they make me sound great. And by the way, we have help on social media and content from Gerson Lafleche. And I know my French accent isn't that great. We really appreciate the fact that you listened. That's all for this time. And we'll see you again next week on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR.